All right, I think I'm all set up, ready to roll, and hope you're all comfortable and set up with your Bible and uh, just ready to be engaged in God's Word here tonight because we're looking at a great book again tonight, uh, the book of James, a unique book. And so we're going to just take some time and run through again the, the who, uh, the why, the, the when, everything like that, just get some background to this book and to the author right now. So of course we know the person that wrote this book was James, right? But there's several James that are mentioned in God's Word. And so we look at and see, well, what James exactly is the writer of this book. And so we've got a few choices to come from here or to, to look at. We've got James, who's the brother of John, uh, the disciples of Jesus, known as the, the sons of Zebedee. Remember, these guys were real firecrackers at times, right, to call down fire from heaven. And so James and John were oftentimes, you know, right there, the inner three along with Peter. And so uh, James is a likely candidate for the author of the book. Um, another uh, option here is James, the son of Alphaeus. He was also a disciple, Matthew 10, verse 13. Uh, we also have another James, who was the father of Judas, the disciple, now, there's really not a lot known um, about this guy as well. And so he's really just kind of mentioned as uh, James, the father of Judas, to be a differentiating factor between that Judas and Judas Iscariot. All right, so that's kind of why James gets brought in there. But then we have a fourth option here, and that is James, um, James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, all right? James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, um, we know that after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had other children, all right? Uh, going against a lot of different opinions among uh, some denominations about a perpetual virginity, we know that Mary and Joseph had other children. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 to 56. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Now, we know that these were, again, the half-brothers, half-sisters of Jesus, since Joseph was not a part of that natural conception uh, of Jesus there. But it was a full house, right? And, and so that gives us some understanding then how they left Jerusalem after one of the feasts and forgot Jesus there. Remember in Luke chapter 21, and so there was a, a, a pretty big caravan that would be flowing just from Jesus' house, let alone all the family members that were a part of that. And so it is that James, the half-brother of Jesus, that is widely accepted as the author of the book of James. That's who I believe is the the author of this book here. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus' brothers did not believe in Jesus while they were growing up, all right? Um, they, they had a real struggle with identifying really who Jesus was. Um, you remember in John chapter 7 when uh, Jesus was preparing for the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And it said, um, his brothers, therefore, said to him, depart from here. And go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. 
If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him, it says right there in John 7, verse 5. If ever you've been frustrated with unbelieving family members that you've been sharing with, witnessing to, and you've just not seen a response, listen, relax, all right? Because Jesus grew up in a divided house too. And we need to be patient and trust the Lord to do that work. So how do we get from an unbelieving James all through kind of that, that childhood growing up with Jesus to all of a sudden having James, the author of one of the books of the New Testament? What happened? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 says that after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, speaking about Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus came and it shows us here in 1 Corinthians 15, appeared to James. That was a time for James, I think, to comprehend the fact that Jesus not only died for the sins of the world, but that he rose again, defeating sin and death. Jesus was more than just a, a good man. He was indeed the Son of God. And James' life was changed from that point on. You see, my friends, what a difference the cross makes. When you bring the cross into the equation and you see the work that Jesus has done for you and for me, how he died, how he rose again, how he's come to bring us to life, it's that which can cause a change in a person's life. And that happened for James. It happens to many people. That's why we need to continue to you know, preach the message of the cross. As Paul did time and time again, he says, listen, I just want to be preaching Christ crucified. I don't want to make anything else really known to you except the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's that which is going to change lives. How we need to bring people to the cross and to the reality of what Jesus has done for them. That he is indeed alive today, our Savior who has accomplished everything for us. And so it changed James's life where he became a key figure in the early church. He became a prominent leader in the early church, we see him there in the, in the upper room in Acts chapter 1 verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. He was a leader also in the Jerusalem council regarding how to handle these Gentile converts that were coming and what kind of, uh, of parameters are we going to put around them or, or what elements of the law do we expect them to, to keep. And so James was a key um, figure in that Jerusalem council. It says in Acts 15, verse 13, and after they'd become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. And then moving down to Acts 15, verse 19, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. He was also referred to as a real pillar in the early church, Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, when James, Cephas, and Peter, James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. That's Paul speaking, so identifying James as a key you know, figure in the early church, a, a key leader. James not only became a prominent leader, but a great spiritual Example, Eusebius, church historian of the 4th century, quotes Hegesippus regarding James. He, he said this, 
He's to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness of the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God. James kind of became known as old camel knee because of his faithfulness and perseverance just in praying and seeking God. So he became a key proponent or a key uh, figure in the early church, a prominent leader and a great spiritual example. Now, so we know the who, James, wrote the book, but, but why? Why did James write this book? Well, each book in the New Testament is written with a, a specific purpose and theme. Oftentimes it's to address a situation or to bring some correction into the church or to the, uh, a specific group of people or just to bring encouragement. James, however, wrote this letter now to encourage Christians that were spread all over uh, to continue to grow in their faith. You see, as we grow through this letter, we begin to see people, uh, believers, that are struggling in their walk. They're going through trials. They're, they're being tempted in sin, knowing the word, but not doing it. And they were favoring the rich. There was in-house fighting. The tongue wasn't being controlled. They were flirting with the world and being arrogant. And so James sees the need that he needs to come and write to these specific needs because these Christians are exemplifying spiritual immaturity. They haven't grown in their faith. So repeatedly, James has to remind them that they're not just to be having a faith, but they're to be living out their faith. That's why this book is being written. James is looking to come and show them, listen guys, it's not enough just to say, I have faith, or to say, I believe in God. That should be seen and evident in how you're living your life. And he's addressing some areas that it's not being lived out too well in their lives here. Sadly, the things that James has to address in this letter, it becomes all too familiar with the average North American church. The problem, again, is people not moving to maturity. Wearsby said, too many churches are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. And you see, it's, it's in this time together that we should be equipped, we should be growing in our faith, so that we can see a faith that is activated and lived out in the things that we do in the world. That's our desire, and I pray that will be the case here tonight, that we're getting charged up in a sense, encouraged to be those not just holding on to a faith, but living out of faith, like we talked about on Sunday, not just being containers, but being conduits where God can do that work in and through us to bless others around us. So James is going to write several times about being perfect. All right, it's going to mention that word many times. And that idea about being perfect is not about attaining to this level where there's nowhere else to go. It just simply means that you're being complete and mature. You're, you're continuing to, to progress in your walk with the Lord so that you're being full of just maturity here and growth. It's the remedy for so much of our struggles and problems, growing up in Christ and being mature. Listen, that doesn't come by being a Christian for a certain number of years right? That doesn't just come automatically because you've gone to church for most of your life. Not everyone who grows old grows up, you see. And it's the same way for believers. 
It takes being changed by the word of God, being filled with the spirit of God. It takes dying to self and submitting to God. So I pray that this letter that we look at here tonight by James is going to be that which will encourage us and strengthen us and hopefully, again, mobilize us to be living out this faith in, in newfound ways with a newfound desire and, and just, uh, again, that encouragement to do so. Now, we've seen the, the who, uh, the why he wrote this. When did he write this? Well, it's interesting because the historian Josephus tells us that James died in 62 A.D., And so since there's nothing mentioned in this letter regarding the Jerusalem Council, which took place in 49 AD, it's believed that he wrote this letter somewhere between 45 to 48 AD, which would make that then one of the earliest of the New Testament writings. So we're looking at a book that was written, um, you know, quite early on in comparison to the other New Testament books. Now at James's death, it was said that the Jews became so frustrated with his testimony that they had him thrown down from the temple. When they realized that he had survived the fall, well, they came and continued to beat him with rods until he died. All the while, like Jesus, he was saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's an amazing testimony in this man, James, who started out doubting Jesus, but came to faith in Jesus and came to a faith that was being lived out clearly. That's our theme of the book, growing in maturity. And so our outline for the book that we're going to look at here tonight, number one, the mature believer and suffering, chapter one. We're going to see the mature believer and service in chapter two. Chapter three, we'll see the mature believer and speech. Then the mature believer and separation in chapter four. And then the mature believer in the second coming in chapter Five. So let's look at this here. James 1 verse 1, it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now notice here, right in the introduction, James, James could have every, you know, opportunity and, and write, you know, as a brother of Jesus to kind of throw his weight around. To kind of say, hey, listen, guys, it's James. Yeah, you know who I am. That's right. I'm the guy that grew up with Jesus, right? He could have had opportunity to sort of throw his weight around to kind of pull a little bit extra authority. But what does James say? How does he describe himself? A bondservant of Jesus Christ or a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty amazing. You see, a bondservant was a man that decided, you know what? I want to choose to continue on with my master. He had the opportunity to be free, but he decided, you know what? I've got it good in my master's home. And he decided to stay with his master, committing himself to life here. So we see James with this attitude of just humility, willing just to serve, to be a bond servant. James knew the incredible privilege and honor that it was to be linked to God. And we are indeed indebted to him. And James writes to the 12 tribes of Israel. See, there was a lot of persecution going on in the early church, especially starting in Jerusalem and spreading out. And so a lot of these many, uh, these, these Jewish believers were beginning to get pushed out of their homes. We saw that in, in Hebrews last week. And so they're facing persecution. They're facing trial and difficulty. So James writes to these believers who now are, are being, you know, scattered abroad because of, of persecution and, 
and everything like that. And so he's writing to these 12 tribes. Uh, so he's writing to, to Jewish believers who are beginning to move around and just looking again to bring that encouragement and to strengthen them in their faith. He says in verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, one of the great, the great tests of our maturity is, is through experiencing tribulation. And we've been talking a lot about this, haven't we? Sunday mornings, we've been in, in First Peter, where we've been talking about trials and suffering. Here in, in Hebrews last week, talked about Christians who were being, you know, persecuted and, and dealing with the, the cost of following Jesus. Now in James again. I mean, uh, it, it is good timing, I can say that, for the things that we're dealing with in the world today. This is not something that I've planned. I've not thought, you know, well, we're dealing with a lot of trial and difficulty in the world. Let's talk about that. This is just naturally coming out in, in the books that we've been camped out and studying through and looking at. And it's just a, a, a timely word for us here, isn't it? But James, I love this because what does James say? He says, count it all joy... When you fall, he doesn't say, count all joy if. This is not something James is saying, listen, there's a chance, guys, as believers, there's a chance that you might just have to go through some kind of trials. He doesn't say that. He says, count all joy when you go. In other words, it's, it's going to be a reality for you if you are linked to Jesus who himself went through suffering and difficulty. If you're linked to Jesus, you're going to face it. Jesus said it himself. In this world, you'll have tribulation. But be a good cheer, I've overcome the world. So we're going to go through these things. It's not something that we should be... Um, it's not something that should take us by surprise. When it comes, that's what Peter says, didn't he, in chapter 4? Right? Do not consider some strange thing that you're going through here. We shouldn't be surprised at this. And so James is writing this to, to fellow believers... It was something that Christians were struggling with. The Christian life doesn't remove trials as, as though having Jesus as our Savior frees us from all hardships. That's what a lot of people, I'm sure, would hope for and, and like to think, but it's not the reality for us. So the, the question can be asked, well, what's the purpose of trials? How do, we, how do trials grow us? And we've talked a lot about this in our, in our Sunday message series, and I hope you've been able to listen to those online and and uh, just, again, be, be caught up with where we're at in First Peter. It's, uh, some just timely messages for us. But we're looking at these things here. And, and we're seeing that James is saying, you can count these things all joy because of what they're producing in you. And what does he say they're producing? Well, they're producing patience. Right? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And... He says, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So, it's an interesting paradox that we, that we see here because as we face trials and difficulties and, and that, that, that idea here is that we're going to grow as a result of this. 
And one way we're going to grow is through patience. That's the, the Greek word hupomone, and it means to have steadfastness, a continuance, and an endurance. It's about continuing on in this race we're in, no matter the stress or the difficulty that's coming against us. And how do we learn to do that? Except through various trials that are going to come our way. See, that's the paradox I'm getting at, is that it takes trials for us to grow in our patience, and it's that patience that we need to endure through trials. One feeds the other. Stability comes not from the absence of hardships, but from the faith in the midst of it. Remember, every miracle ultimately, for the most part, began with a problem. There was something that was there that was a difficult thing. Miracle comes in. Faith began to grow. It was an opportunity for people to see the hand of God at work. Each trial is an opportunity for us to see the Lord's faithfulness in how He brings us through, how He guides us, how He strengthens us. And in exercising patience, we get to see God at work. Trials are not to impair us, they are to improve us. They are to strengthen us and encourage us. And they're given so that we can see God do greater things on our behalf through them. See, the outlook outlook that we have on these trials is greatly going to affect what we get out of these trials. James says that these trials are to perfect and and complete you, that that you would lack nothing. So with that in mind, count it all joy. Count it all joy. These trials are meant to do the Lord's work in us. They're meant to grow us and strengthen us and make us more perfect or complete or mature, you see. So we can choose to rebel against them we can become bitter because of them or we can do what james says count all joy count all joy because you know that god is at work in it and god's going to do his work through it and he's going to do his work in you because of it now we're not going to be able to have joy if in fact we're living for the the temporal pleasures of this world If we value the physical more than we do the spiritual, then trials are greatly going to discourage you. If your perspective is not right, if you haven't put on that mind of Christ that we've been told to do so often in in our study in Peter. So you see, if your life is in Christ and you're living with an outlook on eternity, then you can find joy in trials. Why? Because it's making you more like Christ. That's what we Joy in. Hebrews 12, 11 says, Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful nevertheless. Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So don't give up. Keep pressing on. The, the pain may seem unbearable at times, but your God's child is not going to do anything that is not for your best. And in our weakness, guess what? It's an opportunity to discover his strength. How so? Through prayer. Look at what James 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. So if you're struggling with what you're going through, talk to the Lord about it. You may need that reassurance, that what you're enduring is allowed by the Lord to stretch you and grow you and that he's working it all out for your good. 
It connects us to, to what we saw in verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. We have a knowledge that God is doing a work, but then we, we need wisdom to be able to understand what this work is all about. To, to, to just kind of begin to see what God is doing. So he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God, who, who gives to all liberally without reproach. It will be given to him. Because you might be facing a trial right now that you're going, I don't get it. I don't get it. Why, why is this happening? And we need to take that to the Lord and pray and have wisdom. And, and, and not just wisdom for how to get out of it, but maybe it's, it's wisdom for, Lord, what do you want me to get out of it? What do you want me to learn? What, what areas in my life do I need to grow in? And, and become more mature in what areas in my life perhaps am I lacking and this trial is exposing so that it can be dealt with and now I can be made more mature and complete in you. Pray. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God for that wisdom that will help you see what you need to get out of those trials rather than just screaming to get out of that trial. God will do that work. It's been said that knowledge is the ability to take things apart while wisdom is the ability to put them together again. So as you pray, pray in faith. That's what what it says there. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Don't just be expecting God to, to do what you want or to answer in the way that you would like. Because we all have our scenarios of how we would love to see that particular trial or hardship play out. And typically it's that we want to see it play out within the next five seconds and then to be done with it, right? But when you pray, don't doubt. Don't say, oh, God, why aren't you fixing this right? Trust God. Because those who doubt are like the waves are just being tossed to and fro. And they are just being driven by the wind. So we need to pray, ask for wisdom, but pray in faith. Trust God and trust in his plan for what he has for you in it. Now, now James makes an important distinction here, moving along, because God may test and try us, and he does so for our good, but he doesn't tempt us. Temptation is from the evil one. Say, look at James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So as we endure temptation or, or trials, that word testing, temptation is oftentimes interchangeable in the word what happens is as we endure those things we're proving ourselves genuine in the faith we're showing that we have a valid living faith as we endure through those and so he says you're going to be approved and you'll receive the crown of life in other words you're showing that you are a child of god a child of god that is is you know having a home in eternity where you're going to be rewarded And as this, this work is being done in our lives, this, this purifying work, 
we have again that eternal glory to look forward to. We have that crown of life. That, that crown that's referred to here is the Stephanos crown, the wreath or the garland that was given as a prize to the one that um, was the victor at athletic games. So you see, the way that we live here has eternal implications. It's not just about us, you know, going to heaven or not, but it's about how we're going to be enjoying heaven. Right? The, the rewards that we're going to have. Somebody once said that we're all going to have our cup full in heaven, but some of us might just have bigger cups than, than others. And you see, how we live our lives, how we live out our faith in this world has implications in what eternity is like. Oh, don't get me wrong. I mean, nobody's going to be upset in heaven. Nobody's going to be upset or walking around like, oh man, I wish I... No, heaven is going to be glorious. But the Lord desires to reward those and bless those who have endured. Now, when you go through temptation to sin, what James is getting at here is don't, don't turn that on God. Don't ask why he's causing you to go through this and put the blame on him. Lord, what are you, what are you doing? I'm just, I, I, I'm only human. You, you've overstepped your bounds or you've over, you know, judged my, my capability in these things. No, we don't turn it on God. We don't flip it on God and blame him. God doesn't tempt anyone with evil is what James is getting at. Here's the real problem. Look at James 1 verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So, when you're tempted (laughs) and you're going through a real struggle... It's on you. It's your own desires that are being pulled, that are are having these cravings, this desire to sin. See, as God's nature makes it impossible for him to sin, our nature makes it very easy to sin. It's not something that we have to be trained to do or, or work for. This becomes very natural for us. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. But what about Satan and all this? Can't we have a little bit of an alibi here? Can't we say, well, he made me do it? Well, yeah, Satan is at work, but he would have nothing to work with if it were not for our fallen nature. See, we often give Satan too much credit for his tempting powers and fail to recognize that we're drawn away by our own desires. That's why we need to crucify the flesh. That's why we need to die to self, as the word tells us to. And that's what James says here, like at James 1, verse 21. It says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer and not a doer, or sorry, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, yeah, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. We need to simply put aside the things of the flesh. As I was saying, die to self, crucify the flesh. And we need to put on Jesus. 
One way we can do that is through a daily intake of God's word. But you see, it's not enough just to check a box and say, well, I've had my, my daily reading time in the word because most of us walk away from what we read and, and we forget what we just read like two minutes later. So James says, listen, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of it. Put it into practice. And what a great analogy he gives us here because how many have looked in a mirror and forgotten what you just saw two minutes later? Not too many of us, no. In fact, it's within that two-minute range that we're looking for another mirror to look into to make sure, just get a second opinion. Is that what I really saw there the first time? I mean, we're, we're quite prone to be gazing in the mirrors, to be making sure every hair is in place, you know. Am I shaving? I got any dirt on my face? We're, we're checking things out. Not many of us go to a mirror, and this is James' point, not many of us go to a mirror and go, oh my goodness, I've got like, I still got like that fudge from that dessert on the side of my face here. I better get that washed off. And nobody walks away and is like, oh yeah, I forgot. I had some fudge here I needed to wash off. No, you're kind of doing it right away, right? <laughs> if you're a, a rational thinking, normal human being, you're going to wash it off right away. You don't walk away and forget about it. James says, that's like what so many people do with the word. So he's, he's trying to bring correction. He's saying, listen, don't just be hearers of the word. You take it in, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I didn't let it really do what it's supposed to do. No, put it into practice and be a doer of the word of God now. See, the book of James is a very practical book. It's not a heavy doctrinal or theological book. In fact, it's kind of like the New Testament Proverbs. James gives lots of illustrations and analogies from nature, lots of pictures where the goal is moving us on to action and maturity, living out this faith. So we've seen the um, mature believer and suffering. Well, now we look at the mature believer and service. James gives an illustration of a church service in chapter 2 and, and how we should be seeing our faith in action. He gives the example of a rich person comes walking in and then also a poor person. And he, and he alludes to the fact that many of you would be grabbing a hold of that rich person. Oh, you come and sit right here in this nice place of, of prominence here. Let me hang out. Let me go grab that cup of coffee for you. And we start to cater to the rich man thinking, this is going to benefit me. But the poor man, we're saying, oh, you know what? There's a spot over there. Just sit back. Uh, try not to get in anybody's way. All right, just be quiet. And, and he says, you're treating people with favoritism. And that ought not to be so within the Lord's family here. And he quotes from Leviticus 19 verse 18 about loving your neighbor as yourself. See, when you live with others in mind, you show that your faith is again genuine and you're putting that faith into action. He goes on to say in James 2 verse 14, What is a prophet, my brethren? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? And if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what is a profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, <laughs> this gets into some very dangerous territory here for us that can easily get misunderstood. Is, is James saying that, that works is needed? For you to be saved? Is he contradicting so much of what, of what Paul wrote about in his epistles? In fact, Martin Luther, 
became very upset with the letter of James that he called it a right strawy epistle. A right strawy epistle. I don't really even know what that means here. But in other words, in his mind, it had little value. Right? It, it, James, uh, sorry, um, Martin Luther doubted the inspiration of the book of James. He saw it conflicting with that of Paul's writings. So, how do we balance these two things out? These two thoughts. Because Paul was a real champion of salvation by grace, right? I mean, works was like, let's not talk about works here. In fact, look at what Paul would say. Paul says, and, and of course you know this verse, Ephesians 2, 8, verse, 2, verses 8 to 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, he says. Right? Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So Paul was very adamant, very clear, very strong on saying, listen, it's by grace you're saved. And that comes through faith, yes, but it's not of works. So he's quick to downplay that. But yet James, as we're going to see, is all about works, showing your faith. So how do we reconcile these two thoughts between James and Paul? Well, I like how, how uh, Kent Hughes said it. And he said it this way. Paul's teaching about faith and works focuses on the time before conversion. And James' focus is after conversion. We do not have a works faith, but we believe that faith works. We might say that good works cannot produce salvation, but salvation most certainly produces good works. John Calvin says it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. It will always show itself by its works, by its actions. So really then, there's no conflict. Paul and James are two different guys. Paul was a great theologian, intelligent, well-studied, good at putting in-depth analysis together. James, however, I like how Sandy Adams put this, James was the son of a carpenter, concerned with finished products. Paul x-rays the roots of faith, whereas James eyeballs the fruits of faith. Package both perspectives and you see the picture perfectly. Your faith is not a faith that saves unless it's a faith that works. I love that. Paul is examining the roots of faith. James is looking at the fruits of faith. And saying you have faith is an easy thing to do. You've all, I'm sure, had family members that say, Oh, I believe in God, sure. I used to go to church and sure, I believe in God. But you don't see it being lived out in their lives. Well, now you can claim with them, listen, this only puts you on the same level as demons. Look at what we read in James 2, verse 19 and 20. You believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? See, there are a lot of people that claim they believe in God. But the question is, are you living for God? Because claiming to believe in God simply puts you at the same category or level as demons who all know that God is real. And they all have a faith in God, they know. But yet, they're choosing to rebel and not live for Him. The real declaration of a saved, changed life comes out in how you live. 
True saving faith means this belief has gone from just being in our head to now being in our heart, to where it affects how we live. It's been said that many people miss heaven by 18 inches, the distance from your head to your heart. I like how Warren Wiersbe puts it. Being a Christian involves trusting Christ and living for Christ. You receive the life and then you reveal the life. So we've seen the mature Christian in suffering, the mature Christian in, and, and service. Here now we look at the mature Christian and their speech in chapter 3. One way a mature believer is going to reveal themselves is by having control over the tongue. How many people can say, I've got control over my tongue? Not many of us, I'm sure. All right? Don't lie. Just because I can't see you, don't lie. All right? The tongue is a very strong instrument. Do you know that you can stick out your tongue and you cannot push your tongue in with your finger? It is that strong. Let's go ahead. Try that. I have no idea if that's true. I just wanted to see you try to make a fool of yourself at home there with someone around you there. But um, our words can quickly get us into hot water, can't they? So look at what James says here in James 3, verse 1. He says this, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. So James addresses, you know, teachers, pastors, small group leaders, and how they need to be extra careful because they have a job of sharing with people, speaking lots of words at times. And some of you are saying, yes, Brent, we know. Way too many words you're speaking. Uh, okay, I get it. <clears throat> I know. But we have a, a, a job here of communicating and communicating on behalf of God. And so if we're messing up, if we're saying something that's not true, not valid, or if we're not backing up our, our message, what we're saying with how we're living, well, we're going to be held accountable because we're, we're leading other people along. And if we're causing people to be tripped up in any way, well, there's going to be a severe judgment that, that causes me to come here with fear and trembling and to make sure I've got my, my life in order the message straight because I'm going to be accountable to God one day. And that's a, that's a good thing to realize and how we need to realize that ourselves. But ultimately, we all need to be careful with what we say. James is basically saying, if you can get a hold of the tongue, there really isn't anything that you can't do. Because the tongue is that instrument that really can just cause so much damage from just such a small little thing. And he gives a lot of, uh, again, some great imagery to reveal the power of the tongue. Verse 3, chapter 3, a, big ho- uh, a, a horse, a big horse is, is controlled just by a little bit that goes in his mouth. And then in verse 4, it's ships that are steered by just a, a little rudder. you got such a huge ship and then just a little rudder and yet that thing steers this whole ship. And then in verses 5 and 6, you've got a big fire that can be set ablaze by just a tiny spark, right? It only takes a spark, right? It's all it takes, just something small, and yet it can cause some great damage or do great things. If we're truly children of God, James' point is that it should reflect in how we speak. If we are in Christ and Christ is in us, then there shouldn't be any room for coarse language or backbiting or, or gossip. See, a spring doesn't have fresh water and bitter water flowing from that same spring. 
in the same way, a child of God should not be a source of praise and then also ungodly, unwholesome talk. It, it shouldn't be the case. Jesus said it this way, and I love what he says in Matthew 12, verse 34 to 37, addressing these religious leaders, these hypocrites. He says, Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. As Jesus shows us, our words will reveal what nature we are of. A new nature in Christ or the old nature of the flesh. Because what flows out is going to be seen and evident by what's inside. And if you are in Christ and you are, are, are walking and abiding in Him, then it, it's going to be just that sweet water is going to come out. It's going to be wholesome and blessing. But if you're still being governed by the flesh, that's what's going to reveal itself. And the tongue becomes that instrument that is quickly revealing where we're at with the Lord. Are we those that are truly living out this faith? Is this a faith that truly has worked in our lives? Moving on in chapter 4, as I got to shorten my words here now for you all. Chapter 4, we see now the mature believer and separation. It says in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have your murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, <clears throat> do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So, listen, there's a restlessness in the world, wouldn't you say? When you think about, you know, this being said, wars and fights come from among you, do not come from your desires for pleasure. We see that people are, are living in this world and they're not satisfied and they're restless. They are searching for something that's going to bring satisfaction and peace, and they're not finding it. They're looking in all the wrong places, you see. And God is showing us that what we need is all wrapped up and found in Him. And we need to come out from the world, stop trying to find pleasures in the world, and turn to God. To be a friend with the world, you see, is to make ourselves an enemy of God. That's some pretty strong language there, isn't it? But it should cause us to kind of halt in our tracks to go, what am I living for? And if you find yourself in this place of just contentions and, and, and fighting and quarreling, you have to ask yourself and examine yourself, have I been living for all the wrong things? Am I still so caught up in my stuff, my desires, my pleasures? Because James lays it out pretty clearly. This is where all this 
fighting and, and quarreling comes from. It's for your pleasures that war in your members. You lust and you do not have. You see, understand something there. That's important. You lust and you do not have because you're never going to find what you truly need. You're never going to find that satisfaction for that craving apart from God. The enemy is going to throw things in front of you. He's going to like dangle that proverbial carrot in front of you. Oh, here it is. Just keep moving for that. And it's going to satisfy. And yet, what we'll find in the world is that none of these things are going to help or satisfy. Listen, maybe you're, you're listening right now to this message and you came across this on YouTube or Facebook or whatever. And you're in a place where you're going, man, I have been looking for satisfaction. I've been looking for some kind of help or, or hope. Listen, I'm, I'm here to tell you that that satisfaction can only be found in the one who has given you life, who's created you, who's made you, and he's made you for a relationship with him. And you see, our, our relationship was severed because of sin that came in this world, came in our lives. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of what God's desire is for us. But God sent his son Jesus to down a cross to save you, to spare you. That by simply believing in Jesus, asking him to forgive you of your sin and putting your trust in him, you can be saved and you can be brought in a right relationship with God. That you could find every craving that you've had satisfied in him. And it's only satisfied in him because he's the one that made you. He's the one that knows you intimately and he loves you and he desires you to find life in him, satisfaction and peace in him. If you're sitting here tonight and you are in that place where you're not finding that, turn to, turn to Jesus because he has it for you. Put your trust in him. Look at what God has called us to do here. Look at verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now notice the order here. It's not fight off the devil so that you can come to God. That's what a lot of people think, right? <clears throat> oh, I've got to deal with my stuff. I've got to fix all this stuff first. I'm not in a place where I could turn to God. And, and we think that way sometimes. That's, that's what the enemy would love you to think. But here it just simply says, listen, submit to God. Submit to Him, come to Him. And resist the devil. In fact, the devil is going to flee simply by you coming to God. He's not going to want to hang out with you as you're hanging out with God. So submit yourself to him. Notice what it said in verse 6. We kind of skipped over that. But God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's what we're called to do, humble ourselves and turn to God. It's oftentimes our own pride that keeps us from submitting to God. But, but God is there to give more grace to you. He's calling us to humble ourselves, submit ourselves to him. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Don't you love that? What a great promise and blessing that is for us. Are you drawing near to him? Are you seeking him? Are you finding ways just to be pressing in with him all the more? Because as you do, he's right there to meet with you. He's longing and desiring to fellowship with you. Draw near to him. And he'll draw near to you. What a great truth and reality that is for us. James goes on to say in verse 13, 
Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. So James now turns to the person who likes to plan out his life and live according to his own will. He speaks of like a businessman who's had his time all laid out. Today or tomorrow, he says. He's got the personnel, the, the we will go, the place, such and such a city, the, the duration, we're going to spend a year there. He's got the activity, we're going to buy and sell. And the end result is to make a profit. Now the problem with all that is that we don't know what's coming ahead. We don't know what God has in store for us. You see, we don't know how this is all going to play. In fact, James says, what is your life? It's just but a vapor. In, in God's whole time, I mean, just, this is just a blip on the radar. We're, we're just, uh, in, in scope, in, in the light of eternity, this life is so temporary. In other words, we need to live it where we say, Lord, what's your desire? What's your will? How can I be one that's putting my faith into action and being used of you to bless those around me and to make my life count for today? Because I'm never guaranteed a tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I got to be careful not to plan it out because it's ultimately in God's hands. Now, we're not talking, we're not, we're not against planning your life. We're against planning your life apart from God and not giving room for God to continue to move and direct and, and to interrupt those plans at times. That, that becomes a problem when we're so rigid in our plans that God can't come in and, and redirect at times. So it's not wrong to plan, but just plan according to God and with God in mind and with the allowance of God being able to change that in a moment. Live free, live flexible, right? Live in a way where, where you're okay with God disrupting your life. In fact, that's oftentimes the best opportunities of just ministries in those times that are seemingly interruptions, but they're those moments that God says, oh, I got something really cool happening here. Let me redirect you to that. Allowing God to do that, you see. Our lives are, are but a, a breath. Job chapter 7 verse 7 says, Oh, remember that my life is a breath. So let's live it wisely and let's live it to its fullest for today, putting this faith into action now. So last chapter, the mature believer and the second coming now. Look at James 5 verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient and establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Wow, that's good stuff there. Listen, what is James saying? Listen, when, when a farmer goes out to plant his crops, he doesn't throw down the seed, go to bed that night, and then wake up the next morning going, where's all my crops? Where is it? I put the seed in. No, a farmer knows he's got to be patient. Because it's going to take time for it all to grow. I'm learning to be patient. I've been planting stuff at my house right now and putting some grass seed down, planting some, well, my wife has been more so planting the, the, the garden, the vegetables and things. And I know it's going to take some time. So what we're, we're called to do is to be patient. And, and in the same way that what James has been getting at right from the very beginning, count on joy when you face 
you know, trials and stuff. We need to be patient through trials, through difficulty, through suffering. But understand this. Know that the fruit is coming. As a farmer's patient, knowing that as he's done the work, good things are going to come. So too, as we walk in faith and we live out our faith, be patient because fruit is going to come. Even in the midst of that trial that you're in right now, perhaps. Count all joy because you know that's not the end. Count all joy because you know God's at work. Count all joy because you know God's going to see you through. And He's coming again. Where we're going to live and reign with Him forever and ever. So have that hope in Him. Be patient. Establish your heart. That idea of establishing your heart means to make stable, to set it in place. That's not something that we often have to voluntarily do. It's saying... um, Or sorry, this is something that we often have to voluntarily do. It's saying, though these are things happening around me, and it's maybe shaking me, I can establish my heart so that I don't have to let this move me, or shake me, or rattle me. It's what Paul says in in Acts chapter 20, verse 23 to 24, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations Await me, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul strengthened himself in the Lord as we are to do as well. Keep yourself fixed on Jesus. He's coming soon, my friends. Be patient and establish your hearts in Him. And know that Whatever we go through in this world, it's all going to be worth it for what is awaiting us. So keep moving forward. Keep moving on to maturity. Keep exercising that faith and living out that faith and putting it into action. Let the word of God continue to be settled in your heart, but be not just hearers, but doers as well. Glorifying God and being used of Him each and every day that we have in this world. All right? Lord, bless you all. Let's pray together, okay? Heavenly Father, we just come before you and we thank you for this time to look in your word. And and again, what a good, practical book we have in in the book of James. And Lord, as we're called here to be people of action, doers of the word, seeing faith that works and is demonstrated by its work, I pray that we would be doing so. And I ask that you would help us, Lord. May we come and seek you and, and pray and ask for help and wisdom in these things. Lord, because we do need you. James has called us many times. We didn't even get into in chapter 5 where if anyone is sick or in need, ask the elders to come pray. Lord, we need to just seek you and, and, and know that in and through prayer. Lord, we can receive that help that we need. So we look to you and we ask that you would do that work, Lord, now in leading us and using us for your purposes and your glory. Lord, may this faith that we have in you be faith that is evident in how we live and in what we do. And again, may it all be for your glory, we pray now, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, Lord, bless all of you. Uh, Have a good rest of your night. Hang out. Say hi to everybody. Um, uh, in the chat window there. And again, if there's any prayer needs or requests, put that down. 
And not only will I be able to see that and pray for you, but others that are there will be able to see that and pray for you as well. So um, be blessed and uh, look forward to seeing you soon, everybody.